Genre. to the protagonist podcast where each week we look at a great character in a great story i'm joe dorowski and this week we're discussing jerry travers and dale tremont from the hollywood musical top hat and joining the discussion is returning guest kira hunting welcome back kira hi thank you so much for having me and i'm so glad that you requested this i have heard of top hat but i had never actually watched it until you asked us to cover it for uh this episode of the podcast so this was my first exposure to top hat but i understand you really like this this movie and have for a long time oh yeah this is probably i rewatched it to do this and it was probably my like 500th rewatching. I have no idea how many times I've watched this movie. Um, Fred Astaire was my favorite actor when I was a little girl. Like I would watch all of the Astaire Roger movies starting at like seven or eight years old. So this has been my favorite film for, I don't know how long. One of the only classic films I've like gone way out of my way to see on a big screen with an original print. It's, it's a really important movie to me for some, for some reason I can never quite put my finger on. It just really speaks to me. Um, you said you, you, you would go through like the uh, Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers, um, you know, film uh, team ups. Do you know how many of those there were off the top of your head? Oh my gosh. At least six, but don't quote me on it. There might be more than that. Part of the difference is like whether or not we're counting their core films, ones that were where they had top billing so things like Swing Time, Shall We Dance, Top Hat, um, but things like Flying Down to Rio, they were actually like third or fourth build. So they were in more movies together than were sort of properly Astaire and Rogers movies. Okay. It's one of those pairings that I think anyone who is plugged into pop culture, like you... you you just hear those names together, right? Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're, uh, you know, a, a pair that is, remains iconic now, you know, decades and decades on from, from the height of their, you know, their production. Um, that, uh, like you said, you know, as, as a child, you know, you, you can get exposed uh, to, to some of their films and it, there's, there is definitely still something kind of magical in watching their dance numbers where the, like effortlessness of something that simultaneously looks easy to them, but you know, is so hard is something that I think is, is captured pretty timelessly uh, on, on film. Yeah. And I think it's in their dance numbers, but it flows into all of the ways that they sort of stage with each other, the ways that they block with each other, that you get this kind of rhythm to all of their interactions that come to a head in their dance numbers that make them such a powerful pair because you know, there's certainly great, great dancers of that era as well that do incredible dance numbers in musicals, but they don't always flow into the entire relationship between the two actors the way that Darren Rogers does. Like Gene Kelly is an amazing dancer and he has amazing numbers, but that special something that's in his dancing isn't always in the other ways that he interacts with his co-stars. 
I think that's fair. Um, as we've noted, we are talking about Top Hat, which was written by Alan Scott, Dwight Taylor, Ben Holmes, Ralph Spence, and Carly Noti. This is one of those time periods where there was a lot of committee writing <laughs> when it came to <laughs> films. It was just, uh, the, the studios were turning them out, and anyone who had their hands on it along the way uh, it was, was credited in the, as one of the writers. It was directed by Mark Sandrick and starred Fred Astaire as Jerry Travers and Ginger Rogers as Dale Tremont. And uh, this is the story of Jerry attempting to woo Dale. Uh, not an unexpected uh, plot line for films from this era. It was released yeah. in 1935. And uh, it definitely has some of the screwball uh, comedy uh, feel of, of some 1930s classics. But then with the big musical numbers that you'd expect from an Astaire and Rogers film. Yeah. And I think that that screwballness was something that was really important to the energy of the film, right? Because this is Astaire and Rogers' first film that was really about them as a couple. It, they were paired romantically in previous films, but they weren't really the star vehicles until this one. So you have to have something that puts off that final clinch and the screwball comedy is really what does that like lets you keep going waiting and waiting and waiting for the romance that you know will come yeah and i love 1930 screwball comedies i think it's an energy that hollywood should be trying to recapture um and and they don't often go back to that well of um the blend of like the the mistaken identity farce and the the very quick banter uh that are the hallmarks of the screwball comedy and i wish we could see some modern comedic actors really try and recapture some of that feel yeah i think that getting that sort of sense of the talent that you had from the 30s is really hard to get that combination because it is about not only comedy but a comedy that's very verbal and very quick paired with in this case, the song and dance chops that I think are really incredible from a performance aspect. When you see them like La La Land that was trying to like bring back the feeling of a classic musical, one of the places I think it really fell down was it didn't have that sense of the screwball. It didn't have the acting lightness to it to accompany the singing and dancing. Yeah, it was leaning more into the angst uh, you know, yeah. side of of the emotional spectrum rather than the uh, playful, uh, you know, quickness that, Which, that uh, is really a driving force of this film. Yeah, and I think really a driving force for a lot of like the classic 30s, 40s musicals is that sense of escapism, is the lightness. Um, because in a way, it was as much fantasy as what Disney was doing at the time. It was as much escapism as what Disney was doing at the time. And it wasn't, ever ponderous it was always having that sense of humor that wink about itself so one of the best examples of and, and this isn't like a recent film at all anymore but that uh, a more modern film to kind of try and capture some of this sense of banter is uh the hudsucker proxy i uh, with the coen brothers i think yeah it, it gets some of that and i also remember seeing george clooney directed Le leatherheads do you remember that one with uh john krasinski in it i don't think i've actually seen that one I just remember there were two scenes where it was like, oh, he got it. And then all the other scenes were like, nope, doesn't have it. Yeah. <laughs> when it came to the banter. Uh, like there'd be moments where, I don't know if it was the editing and the directing and the acting all came together to make it feel 
like the 1930s banter of a uh this kind of screwball comedy and then so many other scenes like it's just not quite something's off it's not quite landing i think like amy sherman palandino and in tv can do it for half a second like she can she can do it for a minute but then sometimes she gets too proud of herself in it which is what this never is right like this is it's never sure of itself to some extent the screwball comedy is the characters are the characters like boundless confidence is essential for the screwball comedy to work but the like their tongue is just always slightly in their cheek more but she it has its moments i think palandino has the closest to the speed and the quickness to it and it's just it is just and for me a really interesting like period of comedy and where like modern audiences we can go watch this and really love this comedy but no one's making this this kind of comedy uh, and obviously the comedy that we're getting now is very different than the comedy of the 1930s too um so that it's constantly evolving um you know what what skill sets are being best served by by these different eras uh and we get these time capsules where different kinds of comedy are 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 going to work um but i think uh, when it's captured well any an audience from any time period can go back and watch it and and laugh and and get the joy out of seeing it. Yeah. I think I'm glad that you brought up the mistaken identity plots because I think in a lot of ways it's timeless in the same way that the Shakespearean comedies are timeless. It relies very much on that same sense of play on language, on play on cultural expectations, on characters just missing each other in these really essential ways that let audiences be in the know that are what like Midsummer and Much Ado and Twelfth Night work on. And I think weirdly is what not all screwball comedies, but what the Astaire and Rogers movies often very much work on as well. All right. A little bit of trivia about Top Hat. This was RKO's most profitable, profitable film of all of the 1930s. And I saw it had a budget of $620,000, which must have been it fairly substantial budget but it earned three million in its initial box office run um and so yeah that's a a good return on investment (laughs) right there and rko was like that's a major studio that was putting out a lot of hits and a lot of films that we still know came from rko so to be the biggest or most profitable film of all the 1930s that's a pretty significant hit for rko and it's Um, really amazing when you think about it because today i think people think of musicals as so niche and it's such a powerful reminder that this was incredibly mainstream movie going at the time these sort of big grand musicals yeah it was the you know for all the studios they were pumping out movie musicals because it was some of the broadest appeal that existed um you know for the audiences i i imagine we'll come to a point where like we'll be saying the same thing about superhero films and we'll be like getting the reminders like no no uh, superhero films were so big <laughs> it wasn't like the, the small dedicated fandom kind of like you know like now with uh, westerns like you get one one or two westerns out every year i mean when films are being released obviously not happening in 2020 right and it's kind of like oh the western you know the oh the you know the western fans will go see that one uh but for a long time that was the story mode in hollywood was yeah. we're going to be putting out our westerns and musicals you know predate the western as like the major uh genre that hollywood was going to be putting out 
And it's interesting because if you talk to a lot of people today, they'll be like, well, I just can't buy that people burst into song. Who buys that? And I was like, literally everybody in the 30s and 40s <laughs> bought that people just burn, burst into song. Like, this is not like an esoteric point of view. This was what literally everyone watched who watched movies. Uh, I like that. <laughs> who could buy that? Literally everyone. <laughs> Uh, well, before we jump into the spoiler summary of this film, we want to thank you for downloading this episode, and we especially want to thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you would like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special monthly quick casts, which are shorter episodes, and we talk about uh, the media that we've been consuming in the last month that we haven't been putting out as hour-long episodes of the, of the podcast. And we also uh, want to thank any patrons who support us with $5 per month, and if you support Support us at that level, you get to choose a topic for us to discuss on the podcast. So now on to the spoiler uh, summary of uh, Top Hat. And we have found in doing 300 plus summaries uh, that sometimes comedic farces are wonderful on film and they lose all of their charm when we try and turn it into a quick summary. And they just sound absurd and not very entertaining. Just know this one's pretty entertaining. Uh, so we're in London where Horace Hardwick is producing a show and he has brought the American Jerry Travers to star in it. One night in Hardwick's hotel room, Jerry does a tap dance routine that wakes up the downstairs guest, Dale Tremont. She knocks on the door, Jerry answers it, and he is instantly smitten. He begins sending her flowers and even poses as her cab driver one day and they dance together in the park. All of this wooing is somewhat hurt by the fact that Jerry has never told Dale his name. Seems like an oversight. <laughs> a pretty significant one. Uh, in trying to suss out his identity, she incorrectly guesses that Jerry is married to her acquaintance, Madge Hardwick. The man, so Horace Hardwick is the room that she keeps seeing Jerry in. So it makes sense that she would assume that this is Horace Hardwick. But Horace Hardwick is married to Madge. Dale wants to return to America, but she is convinced by Alberto Bedini, her dressmaker, and um, a, a potential romantic, <laughs> uh, well, he wants it to be romantic between them, uh, that that uh, she should go to tour Italy with Madge. Before, leaves, she run, uh, before leaving for Italy, she runs into Jerry in the hallway and slaps him without saying a word, worried about the scandal that this implies the hotel staff go and confront Horace Hardwick, who says it must be his incompetent valet uh, who is at fault here. Jerry and Horace learn that Dale has gone to Italy with Horace's wife and they rush off to join them. I feel like Horace and Madge don't talk enough. It, it would really <laughs> solve a lot if they would have a conversation. <laughs> well, uh, they had letters. They sent letters back and forth. So they're always just not getting the letters in time. Right. I mean, for the plot, you need them to be that kind of distant husband and wife. Uh, so now Jerry and Horace are going to rush off to Italy so that Jerry can pursue Dale and Horace can connect with his wife again. Uh, in Italy, Dale tells Madge that her husband made romantic advances towards her. So remember, Dale believes Jerry is Horace. Uh, when Jerry arrives, he proposes to Dale but she thinks he's already married. So she uh, refuses him and then accepts Alberto's marriage proposal and they get married. Jerry learns of this marriage uh, and uh, trying to figure out everything, what's going on. He gets Dale to go out alone on a gondola with him, though Alberto is going to pursue them uh, through this finally conver conversation where they actually like, 
talk to each other, she realizes <laughs> who Jerry is and learns that he is not a married man, as she had thought. Uh, we also learned that it was that Rascible Valet who impersonated a clergyman to marry Dale and Alberto, so they are not actually legally married. Now realizing that she is single and she knows who Jerry is, she accepts his proposal and they dance together in a big finale number. The end. It's also that part sounds- of this... I was just say it sounds so absurd when you try and like abbreviate the plot <laughs> and and think, you remove so much of the character beats here. I think it's also important to note this entire process takes place on like four days over yes. the course of like three or four days, which both um, makes it slightly more rational in that it's somewhat possible for these mistakes to go on for quite this long, but also even more absurd that they're like completely in love able to like be heartbroken and let these things go and come back to them in the course of like three days yeah Uh, and you go in accepting that this is going to happen in kind of an alternate universe um uh, like you already mentioned amy sherman paladino or like joss whedon like those are writers who like you have to go in and accept this is an alternate universe where everyone's witty and has a comeback at all times uh and this is an alternate universe where everyone's witty everyone is a little too credulous of uh information that they're given and also they sing and dance everyone's an amazing singer and dancer and that's the world (laughs) that this film is going to take place in Except Bates, who neither sings nor dances at any point. <laughs> Bates was he was there. He Bates was there for one-liners, and he delivered. Uh, He's he hysterical. Was, he was Eric Eric Bloor is an incredible um, comedian, but he does not. We have no idea whether or not he can sing or dance. <laughs> oh, and I, I didn't mention it uh, at the top, but I because it's a musical, definitely didn't mention. This is Irving Berlin and Max Steiner who were doing the music for this film, um, and just from the opening crest, uh, crescendo of of notes uh, as the credits were rolling, I'm like that sounds like Irving Berlin, and then it was <laughs> as I looked a little closer. And a lot of his like really classic songs, like Cheek to Cheek, come out of not just this movie, but a Stare and Rogers movie is more broadly. Mm-hmm. Now, before we started recording, Kira, we were just touching a little bit that uh, this film does rely on the trope of the overzealous male suitor who won't take no for an answer, which was a standard aspect of storytelling for decades. And only now are we kind of culturally saying maybe not the greatest role model when it comes to romantic relationships. Yeah, I I definitely was rewatching it for this podcast and again i had watched it so so many times before but this is the first time i've been watching it to like talk about it with other people mm-hmm. and suddenly i noticed that like okay in the first 20 minutes jerry's pretty creepy um <laughs> he she comes up to his room to yell at him for making too much noise and he like immediately spins this whole yarn about how he has a condition that makes him dance and it can be fixed by his nurses putting his arms around her around him and then like she asks to drive her somewhere she says no so he impersonates a cabbie which is kind of full-on stalker in a contemporary <laughs> context um so that suddenly was a little awkward. And I definitely thought back on the many, many times I watched this as a little girl and my parents were fine with it. <laughs> I was like, okay, this was my romantic role model from the ages of seven to 12. And that's, that's something else. Well, I, but, I, but really that, like that character type of the, the male pursuer who is just going to wear them down like that. That was standard into the eighties and nineties. 
And know. I think, and I think the other thing in this case in particular is this was the first sort of like core pair up of Astaire and Rogers, but it wasn't their first pair up. We'd seen them together so many times in previous movies that you were supposed to go into it reading their chemistry already there. So like she was, we were seeing Rogers as being like coy and playful with him. And she has all these little like smiles to herself when she knows he's not looking. So we never feel it as Mm -hmm. pursuing someone who genuinely doesn't want to be pursued. Right. And I think the chemistry that is, really present between them and then also just the strength of their performances makes it feel less creepy than it would be in in other actors hands <laughs> right then maybe it should <laughs> then it should be yes yeah. then maybe a- it should but certainly it would uh with oh, uh, many other actors from that time period right. that i can think of I'm like mm, wouldn't want you in this role <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, that's true. as a plot point if you describe it it's very creepy in the moment it isn't and part of that is like just the fact that Fred Astaire is so freaking charming in this, right? Mm-hmm. And not any kind of a smarmy way, in a way that he just thinks that he's just so playful about it. And he's so when when he takes the cab, you don't get the sense that he's preying on her. They have a whole beat for him to do tap dancing so she knows it's him, as opposed to him like trying to jump out and surprise her. So the combination of his behavior which is very much light and like this is a game a little bit and her Mm -hmm. behavior, which is always smiling to herself every time he's out of eyeline keeps it from feeling as creepy as maybe it should. (laughs) Right. And um, like you said, this also isn't existing in a vacuum where like, this is the only time we see these characters. Like in some ways this is building off of the audience uh, the audience's existing relationship with these two as a pair and the very strong celebrity text around them as Mm -hmm. a pair as well as a stare like in some way i think it would have been problematic with other actors also because of those actors star texts and histories as kind of like cads but a stare was married to like the same woman he was married to when he was in vaudeville and just didn't have that um even in the gossip way narrative around him as being kind of a suspicious guy. He was sort of known as being a loyal guy. Yeah. And, and certainly there were actors in the 1930s who the, the implications in all the gossip rags were, yeah. were about, uh, you know, not, not the night, you know, not, not the one to settle down. Let's yeah, just exactly. So, so I think that that's, there's the, there's the star text attribute too, that they were a very well-known pair and they were sort of loyal to each other as performers. And he was known as sort of a loyal, decent guy as a star text. There wasn't a lot of like gossip flying around around him. So I think that helps as well. And of course they, they don't get too far into it before they have a nice number to say like, Oh, she really loves him too. She just needed mm-hmm. to be chased a little. Right. And and there is um, to kind of remove like the stalkery feeling, like the way it gets performed is very much in the, um, this is the playful opening number of uh, of wooing, right? Like yeah. not, um, you know, I, I'm trying to go, uh, you know, sleep with her on the first night or anything like that at all. It's no. like, this is me uh, in the very early stages of courtship. 
Yeah, there's absolutely nothing predatory about it. Um, and that's part of that comes again from how we're set with Jerry from the beginning. So the very first major interaction with him is when he sings the song Fancy Free, which is all about being sort of light with life and not he's not in serious pursuit of a woman when he sings that song. And his first interaction with her is her being upset that he's loud and he does this charming thing where he puts sand on the floor to tap dance to put her to sleep and we see her falling asleep to that noise pleased with himself so that first interaction is him being light her being aggressive and mad and him being playful and then like caring and gentle and so that becomes the frame for the next steps Yes, and I I, th- I think that's why um, that it's re- really weird to say it because of everything that's about to happen. Like it, the the relationship feels a bit earned in that moment, but then yeah. you're also going to come to realize she doesn't know what his name is after he's been <laughs> wooing her for a couple days at least. Um, well, so less there's... than twenty four hours. I think it's less than twenty four hours of wooing uh, before she heads off to Italy. I've only yeah. watched it once. I'm going to trust th- your read of the text. I think so because. Sure. There's the night, and then the next day... There's he, the flowers, right? He, he sends the flowers, and he takes her... But that's part of, I think, the same day as okay. the as the horses. And then he okay. goes... Um, takes her to where she goes riding, and they get caught in the rain, and sing a wonderful number in a gazebo, and dance in the rain. And then they come back, and I think it's... I think it's almost the very next day that they leave so i don't think there's like an extensive wooing period it does still feel a little odd if you're wooing someone to (laughs) not give your name but it's necessary for the plot and i think (laughs) actually that's one of the i think actually that's one of the logical reasons that she like resists him playfully a little Mm -hmm. bit more than he does she does in some of the other films is because she's always like i'm i'm not interested yes i am i'm not interested there isn't ever really like a great time to introduce oneself in the interaction like the entire woo is through a song the entire woo is through a song and dance and not a conversation um and we don't do we see them return home after that that's my question (laughs) yeah it it would be in that cut is where that kind of conversation would normally take place yes (laughs) um but i was gonna say it it does make sense for the conclusion that she leaps to as to who this person is that she hasn't heard the name and it does make that feel motivated yeah um you know why wouldn't he be telling me the name oh it's been, it must be because he's married yeah and that's where it's feel, it feels very like those moments is where it feels very like shakespearean love labor's lost to me so for those of you who haven't seen the film it's not just that he she finds out the room number is under the her friend's husband's name she turns around when the porter points to the balcony to say who horace is and behind a chandelier Horace and Jerry trade like briefcases and things and Horace runs off to his room. So when she sees behind the chandelier, it's Jerry again. So she's been told this person is Horace, but then all this business happens behind her eye line and it turns out to be Jerry. Someone actually points it out to her Mm -hmm. in a mistaken way. I do love in screwball comedies uh, the work that gets done to establish kind of the absurdity of of the plot and these right. like just near misses uh, and and like the uh, the 
the blocking and the camera work that has to be done for them and the timing that has to be just right. Um, there's a joy in watching like the artistry because I think it is artistry sometimes and how they're able to give you a reason for this absurdity to be at least palatable to the audience. Cause there's so much about it that you just want to reject as out of place and right. uh, unreasonable. And they've got to do enough work to make it reasonable. And sometimes it is through like these just, just such near misses and um, really skillful filmmakers from this time. Like they, they had this language of showing different points of view and you know what one person is seeing and how close it is but then also keeping the audience in on the reality the entire time yeah. uh and, and it it's kind of like um like we were saying where like the whole audience needs to be willing to go in and accept that everyone sings and dances and then you're fine going in to see a uh, musical they got to do enough works to make the whole audience okay we're on board that these people are just missing the reality that is staring them in the face and now we're on board to see uh how silly this gets as it all plays out and to some extent, it makes means you have to have really tight filmmaking, right? Like conversations have to get interrupted at just the right moment. People have to walk in and out from just the right angles. The the lines that get written later, because so they end up in Italy. I don't know how much you talked about this part in your summary. And um and she's at dinner with her friend Madge, and Jerry shows up, and Jerry has an entire conversation with Madge and Dale in which neither Madge nor Jerry managed to say anything that indicates that they're not married. Uh And so those lines have to be written so perfectly to make logical sense for Jerry and Madge who know they're not married, but also make sense for Dale watching to still be able to believe. And I adore that kind of writing. It is one of my favorite things when you can successfully make everything that is being said have the double meaning and the audience in on it all, (laughs) right? Where, where everyone is um, saying something that makes perfect sense to them and is going to be misinterpreted for obvious reasons by the other person. And the audience sees both versions of it. It's what some of my favorite episodes of Frasier, like when they were doing their farce episodes and everyone had just, uh, like sometimes it'd be like four people in the room have different pieces of information and the audience is keeping in mind what all four pieces and something gets said and everyone gives a different reaction to what was just said. Uh, but it all feels motivated and earned. That's what really crisp writing can deliver. Yeah. And I think that's what this film does so perfectly that and sort of having a balance constantly between who has the upper hand. So one of the the playful things about this film is there's always these moments where Dale thinks she's cracked it, where Dale thinks she really has the upper hand and she's going to get her her revenge or her one-upmanship on Horace or who she believes to be Horace. And then Jerry turns the tables on her in this like completely funny and innocent kind of a way. I mean, not innocent, innocent, but he's not trying to really hurt her. He's just like, oh, well, you know, you'll try and get one over on me. I'll try and get one back at you. In a very like Nick and Nora from the Thin Man kind of a feel. Mm-hmm. And I think that's great too, because it keeps the balance by moving back and forth between who has the, who in the cast has the knowledge, who in the cast has the upper hand at any given moment. Um, I, I think so much about what makes this film special is in things like the dance, the music and dance numbers and this, these um, farcical comedic elements and the direction around them to make them uh, acceptable to the audience. But what do you think makes the characters stand out? Um, I think you could have those elements and then still have um, 
maybe maybe it's the performance or or the characters themselves aren't developed enough where there can be like a flatness because it's all about the absurdity yeah. uh which is something that i've definitely seen in in plays or in some tv episodes where it all becomes about how far can we push uh you know the, this next reveal um or or push this confusion and it becomes kind of dislocated from being rooted in character and i don't think this film goes that far down the no. path so what is it about uh uh, Jerry and, and Dale that kind of stands out to you. Jerry, Dale, and I'm going to add in Madge because I think Madge is one of these like truly great characters who really makes the farce work. So Madge is Horace's wife. Um, I think in all three of the cases, but especially for Jerry and Madge, it's this confidence of the characters that the characters have without ever slipping over into arrogance. So it's confidence with great resilience attached to it. So Jerry's very invested, very invested in making this thing happen with Dale at first. And then when it becomes clear that she's like trying to screw with him, she comes up and tells him this whole story about meeting in Paris that he knows couldn't have happened because he hadn't been in Paris since he was a child. He takes that with such a plum and then turns around so cleverly and so sort of wholeheartedly into the next phase. And you get the same thing with Madge, where Madge is told that her husband's cheating on her and she's just like deeply amused and nonplussed by the whole thing. There's just this core to both Jerry and Madge of certainty that I think makes them really appealing and somehow never ever moves into kind of a cockiness that would turn you off from the character. Yeah. I, th- I think one thing that, uh, or, or, or one way that that gets balanced out is that they have that confidence. And I think where it, it avoids crossing that line into cockiness is that it doesn't feel narcissistic in that the worldview isn't turned in on themselves. Right there, they are still uh, looking outward and like reacting to the people around them, and it's not all about them. Which is where I think sometimes that that arrogant it, it can start to feel less pleasant to watch when it when it's uh, verging into like the so being so inward solely um, in how they perceive the world around them. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, and I think that the confidence isn't so much self assuredness it's not like jerry's like i am so fantastic that she must love me which is exactly what makes alberto badini so unlikable it makes you root for jerry even more is he doesn't have any of that arrogance instead he just has this sense of um ability to try again right this ability to pop back up and not take any of this too seriously he's full-hearted and genuine in his desire for her but there's also something that goes back to the fancy free original Mm -hmm. song that i think is really core to to the character and what makes him appealing and what lets you have conflict between him and dale that never really undermines their chemistry yeah, and there's a tremendous amount of chemi- chemistry, obviously, between yeah. Esther and Rogers. <laughs> chemistry out the years, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, what about Dale? Um, I, I think some of her best moments for us as an audience are when it's her by herself and the camera just revealing 
Um, it, it not, I mean, going back to Shakespearean, like it's almost like a visual monologue where yeah. we we've seen her interacting with uh, Jerry, but then the camera gets a facial reaction that is just for the camera, and it's yeah. completely separate from from uh, Jerry, and it allows us an insight into her interior feelings um, that Jerry is still exempt from. Yeah, I think Dale does a, a tremendous amount of work in the film. Um, first of all, the fact that like all of his little bit over the top behavior is essentially made comfortable for the audience by her responses, by her ability to both be frustrated with him, but not shocked, right? And then amused. Her ability to be both frustrated mm-hmm. and amused is really central. And then you get the repetition of that, the mirror of that in her interactions with Madge, where she is shocked at how sanguine Madge seems to be about her husband's theoretical affair, but also able to play with it, also able to be like, well, if you're okay with it, I am, which is is a response that she has when they're at dinner, and she thinks that Madge is like basically signing off on her and Jerry slash Horace in that (laughs) moment. Um, and so I think that she does so much work to have her responses to these characters to help guide the audience to what responses we're allowed to have or we're supposed to have. Yeah. And, and she is the one character who isn't confident consistently, neither confident nor neurotic. And that's really important too. She's the one character who at times seems actually at a loss. So I think there's a lot of sympathy for her from the audience as well. It remind what you're saying reminds me, and I, I'm sure I must have mentioned this in one of our 300 episodes um, of this podcast, but in, uh, in college, when I was taking a film class, we watched the, some of the opening scenes of Groundhog Day. And there's a moment when they're in the van driving to Punxsutawney and, uh, Bill Murray says something really acerbic about the uh, Andy McDowell character and she laughs and the teacher paused it and said, that laugh is one of the most important things to this entire film. Uh, the fact that she's in on it and she doesn't feel wounded or hurt by what the Bill Murray ca- ca- character just said allows the audience to root for Bill Murray. Um, yeah. and, and that's the same kind of reaction you're describing for, uh, Dale, and it's what makes it not feel creepy, even though so yeah. much of what gets described could be uh, the, those little reaction shots that let the audience know it's okay, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> you and know, she does I'm, it. I'm consenting, or, or you know, I'm I'm a participant in in this courtship right now. And she does it at so many levels, which I think is what's really important to her her role in the film. And that beginning sequence when you're not quite sold on how she feels about it, it's the little smiles, and then after. It's clear that she has feelings for him, but then feels like she can't possibly be with him because she thinks he's her friend's husband. Um, then she moves into like a a larger range of registers, of emotional registers. So just when you like might stop rooting for them because it's gotten too absurd, how despondent and resigned she is when she offers to marry Alberto keeps you going. Right? Because there is no sense of like she's just angry. If she was just angry and she married Alberto, you might not care so much. But the sense that she's like completely resigned to this in such kind of a sad, heartbreaking way makes sure that you remain committed to her and Jerry finding their way back to each other. 
Um, we, we've mentioned that there's so much chemistry between uh, Stair and Rogers. How much of that do you think comes from seeing them together on the dance floor performing in like the, these physical feats of unison that makes you root for them? And how much of it is rooted in like their, their repartee and their, their verbal performance with each other? That's a hard question. I mean, my gut wants to say a ton of it is the dancing, right? Because they dance in a way that's like a conversation, especially in um, this is a lovely day to get out of the rain, which is the first song where they start to really fall in love. I'm sure that's not the actual name of the song, but that's the lyrics. And that's what I'm going with. Um, <laughs> that song, that dance is almost a conversation. They trade off, they trade off steps, they trade off rhythms in a way that becomes more of a banter even than their previous talks. So that's definitely part of it. But I think that they genuinely and sort of unusually have that same degree of chemistry in the dialogue. And that same degree of chemistry when they physically move in relationship to each other, not in a dance sequence as well. So if you think about like the first interaction when she's upset with him and and he's like talking to her as she goes down the stairs. There's all these little ways that they lean in and they lean out to each other that set them in relationship to one another physically, even before they have a dance sequence. Yeah, I think all of that uh, stands from from my viewing. Like, and, and some of it, it's going back to like the like our cultural memory of Sarah Rogers. It's about their dancing, not necessarily they're acting like that's for people who haven't gone to watch all these films they know them as a song and dance couple uh and, and so maybe we want to like lean more into it because that has what uh, has remained in the tradition of what a Sarah rogers uh teaming up was yeah. um was going to be for the song and dance but there is definitely strength in there like they both have good acting jobs yeah. <laughs> right and yeah. and like we've highlighted a lot of these little moments where where we see it on display and it's there both in the physicality and what they give to the camera and it's also there in the pacing of their dialogue which is so important in a screwball comedy no, I, I don't think they're separate right like i think they're i mean i will like go down with the ships screaming that Fred Astaire is one of the best dancers on, on film of all time, because I love Fred Astaire as a dancer and he is, he's an incredible dancer, but I don't think that that's not related to the way that he uses his body as an actor, which -hmm. I think is a really big part of it. And I'm not even entirely convinced it's not related to how well they do the dialogue. Cause at the end of the day, that's about rhythm too. It's about relationship to rhythm that I think can be mirrored across the different kinds of performance, the singing, the dancing, the acting. Um, I think it's interesting when we talk about the rhythm and and with screwball comedy, so much of it is the timing that's going to come from editing as much as it is uh, the performance in the scene. And I was, when I started the film, I was pleased with how much space was given for the world to breathe at first. Um, There's this long sequence of Fred Astaire sitting in, uh, a men's club in in London where where you know the 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 classic British gentlemen have to sit in silence and there's no no sounds allowed um kind of like the you see in Sherlock Holmes adaptations with uh where where Mycroft hangs out yeah um but they they take their time and and like let some comedy play out that is kind of slowly developing in that um and I just thought oh you know the the pace here feels very different where so much 
modern physical comedy, and this builds to some physical comedy from Fred Astaire, is about uh, faster, 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 bigger, bigger, bigger. And this lets everything kind of play out um, calmly for the camera to, to reach uh, the, the visual punchlines of some of the, the physical comedy that comes from Fred Astaire. But then I was looking up some trivia about, about the film and, and prep. And it mentioned like the first cut of the film was I think 15 minutes longer. And then they cut 10 minutes for the previews. And then they cut five more minutes. And I was like, where, where's all this going when it feels in some ways, like it's almost luxuriating in the amount of time that 1930s comedy would, would have to set a scene, um, you know, before you started to get to, to the comedy. Um, but the, you know, there it's simultaneously very tightly edited, but also feels um, a, a little slower paced than a lot of modern things. Yeah. I think that part of that is in this particular film that they keep the B plots to a minimum. I think that's it's about modern films. We tend to have so many things going on at the same time. So many sort of B plots, C plots that we're hoping to come together. And here they keep pretty focused on what this core question of Jerry and Dale is after that, that little framing bit. And that framing bit is so important because it's what sort of wins at least me over to Jerry's side before he does anything else is they have this incredibly quiet gentleman's club and he's trying to be contained. He keeps on getting like hushed at for doing his newspaper. And the part you left out is as he's leaving, he does this very quick, um, very, very loud tap sequence. And this is like such classic essentialist stare for most of his characters is it clues you in that he's rejecting sort of the stuffy strictures of the past. Like he's always pushing just on the edge of the moment. And I think that's part of what lets him get away with as a character as many things as he does. And his tap dancing is a marvel to behold. I just need to say that. Yeah, I mean, that's why I like. That's why I was like, "Well, it's the dancing," but I don't want to credit all the dancings. I think they were spectacular actors too. But yeah, I mean, there are very, very few people ever who can dance the way that the stair dances. And there were others at the time, and there were others who definitely didn't get the recognition that they should have, particularly because of race. But he still stands out as one of the best. One yeah, of the best. It, it's one of those where, like, you're just kind of in awe at what you're watching. Um, just yeah. the complete control that he has to be able to move so fluidly, and, and but with such dynamism, dynamism at the same time, you know, and, and such like pow, like it just hits you. Um, and, and yet it is feels so deliberate. Um, it's 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 pretty astounding. There's a very strong like casualness to his dancing that comes across in his singing and comes across in his acting that I think is just really appealing. It's so mm-hmm. precise, but somehow you always feel that like he's slightly leaned back with his hand in his pocket. No matter what he's doing, it gives that feeling to it that I think serves the characterization here well, as well as the dancing. Yeah, I, I think you're definitely right. Now, we, we kind of early on talk some about why uh, or, or how different this comedy is than than modern Hollywood comedy tends to be. And I, I, I would love to see some call back to the kind of uh, verbal wordplay that is present and the, and the pacing of the dialogue. Similarly, we, we don't see a whole lot of big dance numbers in modern Hollywood films. And when they do, it almost is always like presented as a commentary about dance numbers <laughs> or, you know, so like they've got to be meta and postmodern about it in order to get it in. As 
I know you have a PhD studying uh, culture. Uh, do you know why or, or how, when or how that shift has happened so much that we've kind of left this so much to become a relic of our pop culture past? That's a very good question. I don't, I have a friend, um, Amanda McQueen, who does musical studies primarily, and she would probably be able to tell you like the exact minute. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't do that. I think part of it is partially the shift to what star systems are like because certainly like as far you know even into the the 50s and 60s musicals you're starting to see like the elvis musicals you're starting to see like a lot of musicians as stars and by the time we get to modern musicals we're not casting a lot of real dancers in mm-hmm. the musicals <laughs> it's like me resisting yeah. my rant about la la land right you <laughs> you need really strong established dancers to pull off dance numbers that are grand but spare and that's what the Astaire and rogers are like it the the big dance numbers the dancers that are most meaningful from top hat aren't the piccolino where you have like you know a cast of dozens it's cheek to cheek it's um fancy free it's where it's just him or it's just him and her making the most of the space and of the timing and you need such professionally trained dancers to do that and certainly there are more than enough dancers who can do that out in the world but whether or not there are studios and development executives who will give them top billing in a movie it's a different question. Or, or, or even like invest in, in acting coaches, you know, to, to help accentuate other skill sets besides the dancing, right? Right. I, I, right. I feel like there's been like specialization of talent in, in a lot of ways where it's like, okay, uh, like, like they lament it in sports where they say, oh, in sports, you used to have like two sport athletes. And now like by the time you're, you're going into high school, you've got to choose your one sport and you've got to specialize in that and become just that. And I think when it comes to the arts, there's some of that too, where it's like, no, you, you're going to be the dancer or you're going to be the singer or you're going to be the actor. There is, but there's also still stage musicals, right? Where there are people who have to have all three of those competencies. So some of it, I think, has to do with, like, celebrity systems as they are today, and certainly appearance. I mean, um, you know, would Fred Astaire be a leading man today is an open question, because he was barely, by the skin of his teeth, a leading man then. There's all sorts of, um, there's all sorts of, like, anecdotes about casting directors who said can't sing can't act can dance a little about him <laughs> and i like this is that this one might be an urban legend to this point i've read it in lots of places but i don't know if it's really true or just one of those things that gets passed down um but there is like really true stories about people not being sure that he was attractive enough mm-hmm. to be a leading man even in the 30s yeah, he doesn't have the classic Golden Age Hollywood looks about him at all. But that standard is so much higher now. I mean, I'm oh, yeah. not it, it's, it's higher now. But even in the 30s, there was yeah. like what you expected the Hollywood leading men to look like. And it was not Fred Astaire. I'm not convinced Ginger Rogers could be now. And she was there was no question about it then. So, you know, it's hard to say if it's we don't think the audience is there. We don't think that we don't have the talent there. But it's disappointing when you see musicals today, like try and do the big, num- try and do like a really effective dance number. And it just isn't. 
just isn't in the same way. Well, I and I there's a lot I like about La La Land, but if I was to put those dance numbers up next to a an Astaire Rogers like dance number, it it would feel pale in comparison. It just would. <laughs> and and part of it's also like how do we film film them? Um, mm-hmm. you have to think of the fact that at that time everyone was filming musicals. So directors, cinematographers, they all knew how to film dance. They all knew how to film um, musical numbers. And now they're so rare that I think a lot of television musicals and a lot of film musicals don't actually shoot the sequences terribly well, well enough for us to have like a meaningful assessment as an audience of how good the numbers are because mm-hmm. they don't have a lot of practice doing it yeah um recently we did an episode on zoe's extraordinary playlist which has some numbers where i think they're really nailing it and other numbers where it feels like they're editing around having to do a full <laughs> um big musical number uh you know in, in the way they get shot but there's some that i feel like they they're going all out and like okay this is gonna be our big like performance musical number and there's others where it's like okay we're singing the song everyone's gonna love the song and we're gonna get through this day of filming pretty quick <laughs> <laughs> But and I think you can see it even though like even when you see filming of stage performances now, there's so many times where I see filming of like dance or or like the New York City Ballet where I know that the the dancing is good, I know that the choreography is good, but you just you're like dying because the camera is zooming in on the face and it's like, why are you zooming in a face right now? This is not a time. I do not care about this ballerina's face. So like <laughs> filming dance is a skill set and it's a skill set that you would really have to have in the era of Busby Berkeley and RKO musicals. And I don't I'm not convinced that it's a widely enough held skill set. Like you would have to go be relearned. Today. Uh, Certainly people I'm sure know how to do it and I've seen it and I've seen musicals be filmed well, but I think that that's sort of like an, another part of it. I don't get to see what these dance sequences look like on set. I only get to see what they look like on film, and I don't know how much of it's the dance and how much of it's the filming. Yeah, I think those are fair points. Well, we've definitely left a Top Hat a little bit uh, behind at the tail end of the discussion <laughs> here. Is there anything that you want to make sure we note about Top Hat before we wrap up? As a film? Yeah. Um, I think that other than just being really beautifully shot and having fantastic song and dance numbers, which I think we've talked a little bit about. I think what's really, really spectacular about this film is how well they use a very, very tight cast. It feels expansive, but really for the vast majority of the film, you're talking about maybe six people. And the, the way that those six characters play off each other, give each other just a, enough runway for the jokes to land just enough like confusion and misunderstanding and tension to keep the audience alert is really exceptional that there's in some ways the plot's absurd but also in some ways the plot is pretty minimal there's not a ton of distinctive event beats in this film so so much weight is carried by the relationship between these two characters, but not between just these two characters, but by this whole cast of five or six characters that is very unusual. And I think that tightness of just the five or six characters allows for the intricacy of the farce to remain something that the audience is always following. 
pretty closely because um, I, I love a well-executed farce, but a poorly executed fa- farce leaves the audience as confused as some of the characters on the stage or on the on the screen. Um, but with this one, everyone's I, I on one viewing, I you know I knew exactly where every chess piece was and why the jokes were funny. Um, and, and I think if you have a larger cast, sometimes you you can start to lose track of who knows what when. Yeah. And I think what they do a really good job of is all existing in the same world, even though they don't all have to exist at the same register. So, you know, you have Horace, who has to be the consummate straight man for the whole time. He has to be funny without ever being big enough to overshadow Jerry. And then you have Alberto and Bates, who are like pure pure humor. They're pure slapstick. They're never to be taken too seriously. But the fact that they all feel that they belong in the same place as these other characters, in the same place as Horace, the same place as Jerry and Dale, I think is really exceptionally well done too. That they can have such Mm -hmm. extremely different acting registers, but all meld perfectly, which often I think you feel in comedies doesn't always work. Yeah, I, I think you can all. Everyone can think of like one film where like there's the one character who feels like they're playing it a little more broadly than everyone else, or they're uh, you know a, a little tighter, and it just it makes the comedy feel a little bit off. Like like this one piece isn't fitting perfectly into the puzzle, and I think this this film does a good job of having all those pieces come together to make the whole that that serves very well. Even though Alberto is playing it way more broadly than everybody else, um, Eric Rhodes of Bardini plays it so much is it's so much more broad comedy but somehow it still fits yeah and i think that's one reason why you get that sometimes in films is that there's the assumption that this is going to work somehow uh you know in editing it all fit together or it's making everyone laugh at the moment so we assume it all works and sometimes it does like this where like you're saying there there's a broadness to some characters that doesn't exist for others and yet it 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 clicks properly for the audience and to create one whole piece. And there are other times where it just feels like something is sticking out in the wrong direction. Yeah. And I think that part of that has to do with sort of the RKO Astaire and John um, Astaire and Rogers formula too. So we're talking about Jerry Travers, but like we could talk about the pairing from several other of their films, particularly shall we dance and swing time and talk about some of the continuities too because in some ways they are playing variants on a theme and having that one character who's much broader than all the others is part of that theme and and so it fit the audience expectations at the time but even you know as someone who came to this film for the first time this week in 2020 it, it didn't rub me the wrong way at all that's good i'm a big defender of this movie <laughs> I, I just love this film. i just love this film students Students always ask you what your favorite film is, and I always tell them this, and they always look at me blankly because they have no one. idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> All right, well, that is going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for joining us, listeners, and thank you, Kira, for joining us and recommending your favorite film that we. we and I will say about. because I can't believe I got it wrong that that I looked it up at one point while you were while you were summarizing the film. I know backwards and forwards, and they did ten movies together. I knew six. Six I've seen many times, but there was a total of ten movies of Astaire and Rogers. I can't let that one go to the ether without clarifying. Well, thank you for giving us that. I'm sure at least one of my listeners, like, off the top of their head was like, ah, it, it's ten. Shit wrong, I know. <laughs> 
for show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We'd like to thank Nick English, who designed our logo, and Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to go check out episode number 183, when we talked about Singing in the Rain, or episode number 277, when we talked about Bringing Up Baby. You can reach us by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com, or also on Twitter. You can follow at protagonistpod or at jdorowski, and our producer, Andrew, is at Disminute. And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash podcast. And Kira, I'm a desk last time I forgot. Is there anything you'd like to plug? I know as an academic, you've got some publications here and there, but is there anything you would like to promote right now? No, I don't have anything to promote. And that is all right. Well, thank you so much for joining us again and uh, sharing in your knowledge of pop culture with us. And listeners, we'll be back next week to discuss another great character and a great story. So long. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the... I'm going to give us a fresh read there. No. <laughs>